Trail and Ultra Runners, what is going on? What's happening? Welcome to another episode of the Coopcast. As always, I'm your humble host, Coach Jason Coop. And on this episode of the podcast, which is coming to you after a two-week hiatus, which was facilitated by a lot of my travel and predominantly my MacBook Pro completely shitting the bed, which totally threw my life into even more chaos. We are back with a vengeance and we're back with a very special guest. And it is somebody that I've had a tremendous amount of respect for in the running space. It is the executive director of the Hoka Northern Arizona Elite Team, Ben Rosario. And for those of you trail runners that don't keep track of the road and the marathon space, the Hoka Northern Arizona Elite Team has become an absolute juggernaut of performance recently, and in particular over the last US marathon trials. And that is something to be respected. And that doesn't come by accident. That comes by a lot of force and a lot of dedication with athletes and the coaches that are directing those athletes and the support system that goes around those athletes. And I wanted to bring Ben on the podcast to discuss all of that aspect, how this Northern Arizona elite team started with very humble beginnings based on Ben's background and then how he turned it into what it is today and what we know it to be today. I also wanted to bring Ben on the podcast for a little bit of a selfish reason because this is something that I have wanted to do for a long time in the trail and ultra running space and I'm not sure exactly how to facilitate it. Do we take a model that is akin to the model that Ben has developed? Do we take a model that we see from the cycling world or is it something where we have to adapt it a little bit into the very specifics of trail and ultra running in particular regards to the terrain and surface availability of the venues that these athletes could live in. With all of that being said, I found this an extremely fascinating conversation that touched on a number of different points from business to athletics to elite athlete performance. I hope you all enjoy this conversation as much as I did. I'm gonna get right out of the way. Here's my conversation with Ben Rosario. You guys just had um, some additions to your staff and to your team there recently, didn't you? Yeah, I mean we're 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 in the transition period here of uh, the next phase of our program. Really, uh, we brought on Alan Culpepper as the new head coach, which will allow me to focus on my role as executive director. I've been doing both roles the entire time, and so um, I, I'm very excited because I, I love the business side of things. And so I think I can advance things on, on that end. And, uh, I think Alan can advance things on the performance end. And, and yet, uh, you know, I still have, uh, uh, quite a bit of, um, uh, quite a bit of my day is, is still, uh, involved in the nuts and bolts of the coaching side, at least for now, as, as, as Alan transitions in, um, and eventually that'll be less and less, but you know, it's not overnight. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm very busy right now, but it's, it's good busy. I love the fact that you mentioned it's not overnight because I can remember way back when you first started this uh, program. Now it almost seems like it's evolving into the vision that you had when you originally started it. Because I can remember some of the interviews that you gave at the time and how you were uh, kind of pitching it into the running ecosystem. 
And I thought that, okay, that's going to take 10 years when I, when I saw that, because I know high performance programs, I know how, you know, slow those wheels get ground unless you get a freaking ton of capital and fluxed into it. And that's, you know, that's, that's, that usually doesn't happen. So congratulations on finally fulfilling at least, you know, most or all of that vision. But is that a correct, like assertion that's finally like moving towards this point to where you can see the vision that you initially started with really starting to take shape? Yeah, I, I think that's that's pretty fair. I mean, it's certainly we've certainly been pleased with what we've done thus far, and I do feel like everything we've done thus far is exactly what we, we wanted to do. You know, became super high level program, put somebody on the Olympic team. You know, won national titles from a performance standpoint. I, I couldn't be more pleased. Um, I think from a business standpoint, uh, that's where I think now we're gonna reach a new stratosphere uh, because I'll be able to concentrate on that. I mean, everything we've done thus far has been great. And look, you know, we have a monster, uh, monster budget from, from Hoka and that's awesome. And it's grown and grown and grown and grown um, over the years. And we're as well funded as anybody out there, but um, we feel like we can take that to a new level by implementing more of the cycling model and, and uh, introducing uh, additional high level sponsors uh, so that we can kind of, just blow the competition away. That's really the goal. I love it. So we're going to talk about both like the performance side from the athlete's point of view and then a little bit of the business side as well. But as we were talking about before we got on air, I think we got to retrace a little bit and talk about what the team is originally, because this is a really specific ultramarathon audience. And sometimes we play in our own pool like way too much. It's way too incestuous with ultra running magazine and all these very endemic, very specific things. And, and some of this audience is not going to be familiar with what you guys do out there in Flagstaff. So can you give the audience a little bit of a flavor of what the team was kind of originally started for and where you, and where everybody stands right now and where you want to go. Yes. So I think I, I have to talk about where, where, what I was doing previous to this, because, because that kind of lends context to the, the story. So um, I, I ran for the Hanson's Brooks team in, in Michigan for two years after college moved back to St. Louis, Missouri, which is my hometown, uh, worked for a year there for the St. Louis marathon. And then I opened, uh, with my buddy, Matt Helbig, our, our own running stores. So independently operated, uh, running stores, big river running company in 2006. I did that for six years, 06 to 12. And we had three locations. And so I really, you know, was, immersed in the business side of, of, of running, at least the, 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 the run specialty side of the business, um, for, for that time learned, learned a ton. And, uh, you know, we were very successful, fortunately, uh, but it was, it was, um, it was time for me to do something else after six years, I was fried. And so my wife and I, and our one-year-old daughter moved out to Flagstaff, Arizona in 2012, in March of 2012, really just to go somewhere fun and different, uh, really had no plans, um, to, to start a, a training group. Uh, what happened was over the course of the next year and a half, I got to know people in Flagstaff, got to know some of the athletes, began working with a couple of pretty darn good athletes, um, uh, started coaching them because I had coached in, in St. Louis while I owned the stores as well, a lot of sub-elite type of people. And so once we hit fall of 13, that's when my wife and I, because we kind of been searching for our next adventure, that's when we decided, okay, we're going to 
start a running team here in Flagstaff. Um, the Adidas team that Greg McMillan was coaching and operating was dissolving. And so we had a couple of the athletes that I was already working with, plus some of the athletes that were uh, searching for a new group since the Adidas group was, was done. So that's Stephanie Bruce, Kellen Taylor, Ben Bruce, Scott Smith, Amy Van Alstyne, those athletes who were all very, very high level in the road and track world joined our team. In addition, we had Matt Yano, who I was already coaching, um, Eric Fernandez, who had run at the University of Arkansas. Um, the, these folks formed the, the initial group, and we launched Northern Arizona Elite in 2014. But I, but I give you that context because the, the goal was always to treat it like a business. It was, it was always to be marketable, to share our story, uh, to, to tell the stories of the athletes as, as uh, human beings in addition to what they were doing on the course and on the roads and on the track. Um, we knew that if we did that, then we could be valuable to potential sponsors. And so, we, so my wife and I funded the team with our own money that first year, 2014, but we were creating pitch decks. We were pitch decks, excuse me. We were reaching out to sponsors, potential sponsors. And finally, in the beginning of 2015, we had three different shoe companies interested in sponsoring our group. Uh, one of those companies was Hoka. Of course, it was an advantage to have the other companies involved because that created leverage. Um, we had won a couple of national titles that first year in 14. And then in, in the beginning of 15, Kellen Taylor, ran a 228 marathon in Houston, which at that time was the sixth fastest U.S. debut ever. And that was a big part of our pitch was, look, the, the, the masses are on the road running the marathon and half marathon. You know, of course, Hoka at that time had some ultra marathoners because that's where they got their start. They had some track athletes, actually. They had signed Leo Manzano. Right. They were trying to show that, hey, we can run fast as well. Um, but, but my pitch was, hey, those are both ends of the spectrum. We're right here in the middle where all the people are, where all the consumers are. And, and I think that spoke to them. And, and so they signed our group. And, you know, the, 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 the fast forward version now is we've been with them ever since. This is our third contract with them. The, the, the funding has continued to grow and grow and grow. And, um, you know, though, though your audience may not be familiar with all these names that we'll probably talk about over the course of the uh, of the podcast. But uh, we've reached a very high level uh, in, in, in last year. We had our first Olympian Alex. Tulia Muck won the Olympic trials marathon in 2020 and then ran in the Tokyo Olympics last, last summer. Um, so we, we've, we've kind of reached the pinnacle of the sport in that sense from a performance uh, standpoint. And now we're, we're looking to sort of uh, version 2.0, if you will, where, where we, um, you know, bring this thing in, uh, you know, to a whole new level. I want to get to both ends of the spectrum. I mean, this is part of what really makes this interview intriguing to me is, is you have this eye on things, both from a performance standpoint and also from a business standpoint. And a lot of times we try to isolate those two. And it, when you're, when you're talking about like an ecosystem of athletes or even an, an athlete's ecosystem of coaching and support staff and things like that, you have to keep those things into context and not a lot of not a lot of people in the lay audience kind of really, really realize what goes into it all to create those types of performances that you mentioned. And so I want to get into that first. You, you obviously, you came from a background where there was a training group, kind of one of the original, not certainly not the first, but one of the original training groups uh, in that Brooks Hansen's group. And you've seen a lot of these evolve over the years and they tend to take on 
you know, variations of very similar flavors with subtle, what I would say like subtle nuances in, in, in between the different models. But from an athlete's point of view, what do you think are the like the main advantages for an athlete to say, you know what, I'm going to go here or I'm going to go there versus I'm just going to train on my train by myself in my own, you know, in my own kind of little bubble. What would your pitch to athletes be who are trying? What would your pitch be to the athletes that are trying to like navigate that space in terms of what direction to take their career from a training perspective? Yeah, I think the days of, of training on your own are sort of behind us yeah. because even if you look at the people who are quote unquote training on their own, they've built a support system <laughs> yeah. around themselves or they, they, they have, have support systems come to them because of that. Well, right? Yeah. I mean, they have their coach, they have their training partners uh, that they work with. They have an often, oftentimes a significant other that, that serves as a, um, a, a training mule, you know, but biking along for all their sessions and, and they have their sports uh, physios that, that, that they see on a regular basis. So, I, I think in, in a way, everybody is group training now, <laughs> you know, even the people that supposedly are on their own, but, but the, the, the advantages of, of a structured group, uh, a true professional team like ours, and, and there are others is that everything is taken care of uh, for you. You know, we have our massage therapists, we have our strength and conditioning coaches who are world-class. We have our sports psychologists. We have, a, in our case, a three-person coaching staff. We have, um, of course, a wonderful sponsor. Um, uh, we're, we're very well-funded. Uh, your training partners are, are world-class. Um, you're, you're training with people each and every day that are like-minded uh, individuals. They also, you know, have have, have that same ability level. Um, so you're, you're pushing one another to, to greater heights and, and there's, look, there's mental value in, in running for more than yourself as well. You know, um, running in high school and college, the best part is the team aspect. Yeah. So to continue having that aspect is a huge piece of this thing as well to put on that Jersey and have it mean something. Um, I, I think that's really important. So those are just a few of the things, but from a, you know, from a pure performance standpoint, it's just the best situation because you're, you're going to have everything you need to reach your goals. And you played a, a the credit, the critical role in figuring out what all of those pieces are. You mentioned a few of them, massage therapists, the sports uh, psychologists, the coaching and things like that. Is that something that evolved over time or from the get go you decided that the that the elite athletes that you were bringing on, they had to have these certain essential services in order to make the whole thing work in the first place. Like, kind of describe how that how that or if that has kind of changed over the years. I think it has evolved over time, and I think it continues to evolve because it's a this is a science, you know, and so you've got to stay up to date on the latest and greatest methodologies and. Some of that is financial because you, we need to be able to pay for all these things. And, and, you know, that's been part of it as we've been, you know, gotten more and more funding, but um, you know, early on, look, I didn't know, I didn't know that there was such a need for a, a sports psych or a mental performance specialist. Um, now I re realize that that's a need. So we implemented it um, early on. I didn't realize that it would be, um, you know, beneficial to have a, a bunch of different massage therapists that we use because 
not every massage therapist works for every athlete. Now we have nine different therapists we work with. Um, didn't realize early on that we needed to be in the weight room twice a week, thought once a week was enough. Um, you know, these things evolve over time. So I would, I would just tell you, I knew right away that it was, it was going to take more than just running. Um, so that's always been our, at the core of what we do. Understanding the ancillary pieces are very, very important. And I, I guess I would just say they've become more and more important as the years have gone by. And, and I think that'll continue to be the case moving forward. When I've seen these things evolve, the, the point that you just made that it's got to be more than running. When I've seen these things evolve, it, the, the training almost takes care of itself because the training methodology and what people are doing is we can argue about like the little small nuances and things like that, but by and large, everybody's kind of doing the same thing and it's the duties as otherwise specified or the services as otherwise specified or the ergogenic, you know, whatever you're using as otherwise specified that tend to, that tend to be some of the bigger differentiators. I think that's true, but I also think that, that perhaps the biggest differentiator is culture. Mm. So you, you have to have the buy-in. You have to have the athletes excited about what you're doing. You have to have them believing in what you're doing, believing that this is the best place for them, believing in each other. Um, that's really, really important. And of course, culture ups and flows, um, chemistry ups and flows over the course of the years. I mean, we're in our ninth year. So, you know, there's been periods of time that have been unbelievable. And then there's there's been periods of struggle, of course, um, as you would expect with, with any such uh, organization, but, uh, we happen to be in a great period of time right now. And, uh, it feels very, very fun right now. Um, okay. So describe a little bit of the, push pull that happens when athletes either want to be a part of the program or when you're out in the field trying to recruit them. Cause once again, we've got an audience that kind of like, doesn't really know the ecosystem. What does that look like? Are you, you know, bang, like in the t- typical collegiate, you know, program where they're banging down high school kids doors and things like that, or have you built up enough reputation where people you've got like a waiting list, so to speak, what does that look like? I think both things are happening at the same time. So, so people are coming to us left and right, but we're also, um, we're also trying to go knock on the doors of the very best people, um, in the NCAA. So what I like best is when was, is when, um, it's mutual, you know, Mm -hmm. the same person that we wanted is knocking on our door. Then we're in a good situation. Um, you know, of course that's not always the case, but, um, it is really, really important that we sign the right people. And what I mean is what I basically mean is that we're the right place for them. You know, um, of course, of course, you know, um, we want them to be very talented and, and we want them to be at the, at the very highest level, but we also want them to be able to feel like this is the right place and, and we're the right team for them and the right coaching staff and Flagstaff is the right city and that they can live here and enjoy themselves and be happy outside of running. All those things are really, really important. Um, we're very confident in our program and physically um, how we're able to prepare or how we're able to prepare people physically for, for the biggest days. But um, look, you, you got to enjoy this and you got to enjoy a structured system. You know, not every team is, is um, the same. They don't know. You, you said earlier, there are nuances and I agree with that. Um, there are, there are slight differences between how each team functions and, and we very much function as a, as a professional organization. And, you know, yesterday we had a 90 minute social media meeting, you know, we we're, we're in constant contact with the Hoka marketing folks uh, about different campaigns 
campaigns and things that we need to be doing. And um, we're, we're brand ambassadors and we take that very seriously. And, and if that's not a part of what you want to do, then, then we're probably not the, the group for you. And that's totally fine. Yeah. You know, um, we live at altitude all year long. If that's not for you, we're not the group for you. These are little things that we, that we sort out during the recruitment phase. Um, and we try to really do our due diligence. Uh, but, but the way it works, um, if people aren't familiar is it, it is kind of like that college recruiting process. We, we talk to them sort of informally um, as they reach the end of their eligibility. We, we talk to them, you know, nowadays on zoom. Um, and then uh, actually the first thing we do is talk to their coach then, then we talk to the athlete. Um, if that goes well, then we usually set up a visit and they come to Flagstaff and spend a few days with us and immerse themselves in our culture. And if they leave that visit feeling like this is the right place for them or, as, you know, they feel 99% sure, it's hard to be 100% sure. Um, and we feel 99% sure that this person is a great fit then we try to make it work. And then there's the business side where, you know, they usually sign an agent with an agent after they finish their eligibility. And that agent works out a, a contract with Hoka and, and NAZ elite. And uh, you know, those contracts vary uh, in years and in, 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 in compensation dollars, et cetera, just like in any uh, sport. But um, that's the process. You mentioned something that I don't want to, that, that I don't want to uh, miss. You talk to the coach first. Which is really interesting, right? Why is that? Because I know that's a very deliberate strategy. Why do you talk to the coach first as opposed to the individual? I mean, number one is respect. You know, I think it's it's out of respect. Uh, these coaches are are our colleagues, and so I I don't feel like it would be right uh, to reach out to the athlete without reaching to the out to the coach first. I think that's the that's the number one thing. I. Th- think secondarily um, they're the conduit, you know, these, these coaches, especially at the college level are motherly fatherly figures to, to these athletes. And um, these athletes typically, if, if the relationship is good, they don't trust anybody in the world um, as much as they trust their coach. And so if we can set up our first chat with that athlete via the coach, it's sort of a stamp of approval, um, the stamp of approval that we need. Um, and it gets us off to a good start uh, in terms of the relationship. So that brings me into a great transition point to my next area. So I'm, I'm a coach by trade. And I'm always curious it, within these group training uh, setups, how the coaching actually works. Because you're bringing in this collection of individuals. And as you, as you know, with your background, there's always an individualistic nature of how the training uh, needs to be applied. And then you combine that with the fact that they're coming from a collegiate program, which they have an established relationship with a particular coach and you guys have coaching staff on board. So take us through like how that actually gets flushed out and what the athletes are usually thinking about when they're like going through that process because they want the right setup, right? They're ultimately like coming into the program to succeed. So what are they thinking about during that time as well? Different athletes have different priorities. When when we recruit, some athletes ask us a lot of training questions. Other athletes are just super confident in themselves and they just, they just want to be, <laughs> just, give me the work. They just, just give me the work, just give me the work. Um, so I think it depends on the individual um, as far as how it works, uh, you know, bringing them into this new system. I think you said it earlier. It's not terribly different 
different. You know, usually the top college programs, which that's kind of where we're recruiting from, it's not terribly different than what we're doing here. Um, usually very um, strength-based and, and you know, a lot of lactate threshold work. It's kind of the latest and greatest methodologies are being used at the college level, just like at the pro level. And so there's not these gigantic differences, but there are individual differences, you know, in terms of physiology. And so I think Alan Culpepper, our our new head coach, uses a really good term. He calls it collective individualization, uh, meaning that, you know, we have a, we have a, an approach, um, and we have principles that we believe in from a training perspective, but we, we layer those philosophies and we, we individualize training um, sort of underneath this collective umbrella and how that looks is it almost varies segment by segment, you know, over the years I can think of segments where, we had a lot of people on the same page because they were getting ready for the same event on the same day. And that event required very specific preparation, like the Olympic trials marathon in Atlanta. Um, We had six athletes training for that. And they pretty much did the exact same thing the entire time, except for one younger athlete um, didn't do quite as much volume as the others and just had a couple of sessions that were different, but otherwise it was almost the same throughout but then you take a segment like we're in right now where we have Alephine doing some shorter road races. We have Stephanie Bruce um, who's getting ready for the gold coast marathon. We have Katie Wasserman getting ready for the track. We have Alex Masai and Wesley Kip to two really great young runners straight out of the NCAA um, sort of getting their feet wet in road racing, but then also focusing on a 10,000 meter on the track. So it's just, there's a lot of moving parts and there's very, there's been very few workouts where people have been together. Um, now they, they're doing a lot of easy runs together. Um, Alice Wright is training for the European marathon. It's another one. So European marathon championships. So, so everybody's together. There's a collectiveness to what's going on, but the workouts are individualized right now. So eh, that's just kind of a, a little sneak peek. Speaking of that collectiveness. So do all of the athletes, are they all contained within the services that you offer? Meaning they're using the same group of coaches, the same group of massage therapists, the same strength training coaches and things like that. Or do you give them the flexibility to say, Hey, I want to go use this mental skills coach, or I want to go get testing over at this physiology lab, or I want to use, you know, so-and-so speed program just for this one, you know, one training block or whatever. Like how do you, do you ever come into those conflicts isn't the right word, but where they want to kind of like drift out of the ecosystem that you've built. I would not say that happens very often. I mean, that's not really an option. <laughs> if you want your own strength and conditioning coaches, you'll have to go somewhere else. Um, there's uh, there's some things that aren't optional because it's a slippery slope. Um, and look, you know, I'm not out here to be their best friend. You know, I'm here to to give them what we believe works. Um, and what we believe works is is very. Um, uh, we 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 believe that we have all those things in place. Now, there are as we get farther and farther away from the the training. So I'm talking running the strength and conditioning, um, the ancillary work, the the speed development work, that, that stuff is all very structured and very much uh, inside that, that ecosystem, as you say, Um, if there is a therapist that we think, or you think as an athlete can help figure out some kind of little setback you're dealing with, 
yes, let's try it. We'll try anything uh, to, to figure out these injuries. And so there are some, there have been occasions where athletes have gone to a therapist that they used to use back home or um, uh, somebody down in Phoenix that is really good. Uh, John Ball, for example, we've, we've, we've sent people down to John Ball, um, even though he's not here in Flagstaff. So there are those situations where, uh, when we're trying to figure it out and figure it out, figure out an injury, excuse me, um, that we've, we've gone outside of what we have here in Flagstaff. But, uh, but that's really all that I could think of other, other than that, um, folks are pretty much, um, you know, they, they pretty much have everything they need. Well, and that's it by design, right? And I mean, you're trying to bring out your, as you mentioned earlier, you're trying to bring the best and the brightest underneath one roof so that the most talented people can take advantage of the best types of practices. And the further and further you drift from that, you kind of get away from that, that very core tenant or that core philosophy. Yeah. You look, you, you lose buy-in, you know, yeah, if, if, sure. you, if you, if you, I mean, I, this would be super hypothetical because we would never allow this to happen. But yeah, if somebody said, Hey, you know, for the next four weeks, as I get ready for this race, I want to use my old college coach for my workouts. I mean, and we said yes to that. Yeah, what's the point that we would lose all credibility with all the other athletes. Yeah. And so it's not possible, you know? And, um, uh, yeah, I, I think that would be a terrible mistake uh, if, if a group tried to try to allow that much flexibility. And, and look, some people might be hearing me say this and think, Ooh, I wouldn't want to be in that situation. Totally fine. Yeah. Totally fine. Uh, you, you don't have to be in this situation. You know, like, I think that's the big thing to understand is it, there are a lot of in the pro running world, pro road running track world right now, there are a lot of options and that's great. Um, I think the athlete, needs to do their due diligence beforehand uh, before they choose their path to make sure they're putting themselves in a place that they're going to uh, really enjoy and, and really thrive in. And it goes without saying that those choices have evolved over time and they've been there for, for longer periods of time as well. Because I, I used to feel that athletes graduating from the collegiate system, and you're kind of part of this era as well, you were kind of just like set adrift and there were very few opportunities that were very few and far in between where you could actually participate in some sort of coach post-collegiate program. And the research, the due diligence that you just mentioned was even further and farther between because there wasn't all these, there weren't all these like pieces of technology and social media and things like that to actually kind of, kind of, kind of connect it. And I, I think that, I think that that's been quite refreshing to see post-collegiately because you can have you can have the best athletes in the world with the best career, but if they don't know how to manage that career, especially as the competition gets tighter and tighter and tighter, a lot of times those athletes just kind of slip through the performance cracks and you never really hear or see from them again. Yeah, I think we lost a lot of talented athletes to that sort of abyss <laughs> that you're describing <laughs> yeah. uh, that back in the day. Uh, but yeah, it's not happening now. Everybody has Everybody great knows. options and yeah, you know, again, perhaps we need to explain more because, um, maybe the audience here is maybe a little more ultra marathon, um, focused, but, but essentially what, it, what, it, what it is, is when you come out of college in this road and track world, your path to making a living is via shoe company sponsorships. And I think that's sort of the same in the ultra marathon world, but the, uh, the from the competition side of things in order to be marketable for those companies, you have to be either um, performing at a super, super high level on the track and, 
you have to be good enough to make it to the world championships and the Olympic games, or, or you have to be uh, a great marathoner that that's pretty much the, 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 the two kind of vehicles to, to be really marketable is to be really, really fast on the track, 1500 meters, 5,000 meters, 10,000 meters, or um, be a, be a world-class marathoner and be able to finish in the top 10 at New York city, London, Chicago, Berlin, uh, things like that. Uh, that those, those are the, those are the paths to making money. Well, but you guys have enhanced that though. So I'm going to give you a little bit of credit and I know you, you're aware of this as well. You're, you were at the forefront, you and your group were at the forefront at making the athletes that you brought into your team seem like everyday people. Like you put them out, like you literally, you kind of just like put them out in the public in the, you know, virtual public and also in the physical public in a more accessible way than we had really seen in the past. And I think a lot of fans really appreciate that strategy because a lot of times we think of these, you know, like training robots that are just behind closed doors and training on their treadmills 24 seven and, you know, living this like monkish kind of, kind of life where they're isolating themselves from friends, friends and family and things like that. And those types of touch points I've always viewed as good for the sport because they make people, especially the moms in your group, more identifiable with the public and then, and then therefore more marketable. So when, what I want to know is, is when you're initially kind of like taking on that strategy, it was a little bit different than what we typically saw with a lot of the elite athletes and a lot of the elite training groups. What was the experience like going through that initial like marketing push of making this group just more accessible as a whole? Yeah, I, well, again, I, I, I said at the top that I had come from six years owning my own running stores and it was really, it was really just that same strategy. So the, the, the strategy we used at the stores was to create a community around our store and be much more than just a running store. And so we were the community meeting place for, for the running community in St. Louis. We, we, we hosted tons of group runs. We had the speed workouts. We did the races. We did the clinics. We had a youth team. We had a, you know, a, a startup, uh, 5k team all, or 5k group, you know, for beginners, all those things. And, um, we were very, um, we were very transparent in everything that we did. And we sort of made stars, if you will, out of the personalities at the store or myself, my business partner, um, the, the, the folks who ran for our racing team, like they were all sort of stars in the St. Louis running community, if you will. And so it was that same idea, but on a national or even global scale with the, with the team here, it was, Hey, we've got to make these athletes super relatable to the fan base. And there's a giant fan base out there to pull from because, you know, there's millions and millions of runners across the world and they, they want role models. They want idols. Uh, but they've got to, they got to feel like they know these folks. So I'm a big sports fan. And because the top sports figures in the world are interviewed after every game and they play in the, in basketball and in, in, in hockey, et cetera, 80 games yeah. a year, you feel like you know them because you see them talking all the time. And that was my thing was look in distance running. We only race a few times a year, especially if you're a longer distance athlete. Um, 
marathoner or ultra marathoner. And so in order to put yourself out there and get people to know you, you got to do it yourself. Nobody's going to do it for you. There's no machine like the NBA, like the NHL, like the MLB, uh, et cetera, uh, driving these, these um, personalities into the public consciousness. We've got to do it ourselves. And so that was my thought was, Hey, uh, we don't have 82 games a year, uh, but we have 365 days a year and we can, we're running every day. So let's give them as much of an inside look into what we're doing and who we are as, as possible. Well, and the big thing is, the athletes are actually relatable, which a yes. lot of like a lot of normal people, they just don't, for whatever reason, they've got this psychology in their head that they're, like I said, they're robotic or, or just what are they just don't relate to like normal, like these are people that go to the grocery store. They have their, you know, personal and social issues and things like that. They have strife in their life, just like everybody else. And when you present these like really good athletes, or as you mentioned, the stars as just normal people, it increases the fan base. And it's also just a neat story. It's just a really neat story to tell, which running and track and field needs more and more of those very desperately. Yeah, no, I mean, look, the, the other thing I always say, and I said this at the beginning when we started, and I, I really am proud of the fact that I think this has changed over the years for, for so many years in our sport, there was a, there was a belief at, among the gatekeepers, if you will, the, the brand managers, the marketing people at, at the top shoe brands, the, the, the running store owners that we shouldn't be marketing these athletes to the public. It's going to turn them off in some way, which was so weird. weird. Yeah. Like weird. what on earth can you imagine a, a soccer magazine not having Cristiano Ronaldo on the cover be, because, Oh, that Cristiano Ronaldo, he, he, he's not relatable. He scores too many goals. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, it doesn't make any sense. It, every other sport uses their athletes to grow their game, if you will. Um, and yet for so many years, we weren't doing that. And it was so bizarre to me. We were trying to focus on Oprah Winfrey running a marathon instead of, <laughs> instead of the best athlete. It just didn't make any sense to me, but I, I feel like that has been a big change over the last decade. And I'm, and I think it's a change change for the good. Uh, I'm, I'm totally with you on that. Sometimes I look at the marketing strategies and it, I've always taken a top down approach, right? you've got to take it from the very, the spear, of course. yeah, you've got to take it from the very tip of the spear and then move it down because people, because like I said, those elite athletes, they're real human beings, which a lot of people don't give them enough credit for. And if you sit down and you have a beer with them or a pizza or whatever, you'll find out that they're just normal people, just like everybody else. They just have really spectacular aerobic engines. And like, why do you think the New York city marathon and the Chicago marathon and the London marathon are the biggest marathons in the world? You think they would be that popular? You think they would be on television if there was no pro field? Yeah, right, right. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So we, we, we know that this works. Um, and, and yeah, I, I'm glad to see, and of course I'm biased, but I'm thrilled that we're working with a brand Hoka that understands that and promotes their athletes and spends money and time and effort to tell the stories of their athletes. Of course, we do that at NAZ elite as well. And it's a, it's a joint effort between, uh, you know, the, the folks we have here and, and the brand. Uh, but um, yeah, I just think it's a, it's, it's a proven strategy in all sports and it works in ours as well. I want to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about Hoka's role in all this, um, because if you you've kind of you've described this a little bit throughout the course of the interview, where every single year there's been gradual iterations to the program, 
And those iterations are either largely or exclusively fueled by the capital that Hoka will will infuse into the program. They're going to add more dollars. You can add more people. They're going to add a different level of sponsorship. You can bring on different, you know, athletes and things like that. So first off, is the entire program funded by Hoka 100% or are there other sources of revenue kind of coming into it? We have a few different sources of revenue. So we have our sponsorships, Hoka being our title sponsor and our, you know, by a wide margin, our, our, um, our largest source of funding. We have Rudy Project Sunglasses. We have Final Surge, the online training log uh, platform. And then we have uh, Picky Bars. So we have, we have four total cash sponsors. So that's a, a pool. Um, and then we have uh, revenue from our gear sales as well. Um, so currently those are our two main, main sources of revenue for the team, you know, that goes to our general fund. Now, of course, for the athletes themselves, you know, they have their base compensation. They have a very healthy bonus schedule and uh, they have prize money and they have appearance money and they have uh, the top athletes anyway, get appearances at the top uh, major marathons. And then they have the opportunity to have, um, uh, individual brand ambassador roles with companies that don't conflict with any of our uh, team sponsors. So um, there's money flowing in, in a lot of different ways, but, uh, but no question Hoka is the, uh, the driving force between or behind everything we do. They've been a, a pioneer in this area, I think. And a lot of trail and ultra runners will primarily think of them as a pioneer in the trail and ultra space. Cause that's kind of where they, where they started with their French roots but I give them a lot of credit for for partnering with you for such a long period of time. I think that that's unique in the space as well as to have a partner for that for that long of a period of time that's willing to be, like you said, the lion's share of it. What when you kind of look forward to another ten years of this, where where do you want to see the business side of it evolve? either from a revenue perspective or the athletes that you're pulling in or a support perspective, like you tend to have these, you know, you tend to be a little bit of a visionary, so to speak, in terms of where things can go five and 10 years from now, specific to your ecosystem or even the team ecosystem that, that exists in the United States at large, where do you think that that's going to go in the next several, several years? Well, I can speak for us. I mean, we're, we're, we're very much going to follow the cycling model. Um, we're going to increase the number of athletes that we have on the team, eventually up to 30, um, so that we have, you know, 10 or so athletes that are really marathon focused, 10 or 10 or so athletes that are really track focused, and then 10 or so athletes that are versatile and can kind of, um, do both, if you will. Um, that's, that's the cycling model from a performance, uh, perspective because of course on us on a major cycling team you have uh one day specialists you have tour specialists you have uh, a little mix of both um uh, and then you have the the business side of the cycling model which is multiple big sponsors there is nothing stopping us from getting multiple big sponsors in this sport it's just that the tradition has been you get your shoe sponsor and that's it but there's nothing stopping us from getting more sponsors and Hoka is all for this. And they believe that this is the future as well. And so this is the whole impetus between behind me uh, stepping away from the day-to-day coaching and, and freeing me up eight hours a day to work on the business and to promote our team, make us marketable to 
not only endemic sponsors, but non-endemic sponsors. Um, I, I would tell you five or 10 years from now, we will have a high level performance center here in Flagstaff that we own and operate that includes a weight room and room to do indoor drills and strides, uh, podcast, uh, space, uh, office space, locker room, cold tub, uh, cold pool, uh, hot tub, uh, recovery space, all these things. We, we need to be a professional sports art organization in every sense of the word. Um, and that, that's, that's what's going to happen over the next five or 10 years is you'll see, I, I really believe Hoka continue to be our, our, our main title sponsor, but then we'll have presenting sponsors at a very, very high level. Um, and, and um, you know, look, we're also going to be able to do super cool things with that. Um, we're going to be able to give to the community in ways that we, that we uh, have never been able to before. I mean, we're already starting that now with, um, a youth track team that I coach here in, in Flagstaff and, and um, some of the work we've done on the reservation with the Hopi tribe, uh, those things are going to continue and continue to grow. And um, these are things that you see major sports organizations doing in their communities as well. And so, um, yeah, I, I just think you're going to see us be more and more uh, professional. Well, the non-endemic side is where it's at as you realize that, the pool of those dollars are far, far surpasses the pool of endemic dollars within the within the running space or even in that the athletic space. If you wanted to broaden that out, if you talk about the big, big athletic brands, once you start to branch out from those, the pool gets a whole lot bigger. And you're right. There are there are very successful athletic models out there that we can that we can kind of pull from. I envision you having a lot more staff. <laughs> if you're gonna talk that big and broad, like you you need like thirty more people. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Yeah. No, 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 no question about it. And that's what we've done along the way, you know, for, for years, it was just my wife and I, um, then, then we added, you know, uh, well, of course we had our strength coaches and whatnot, but now, you know, if you look at what we have now, depending on what you call staff, we have myself, uh, as executive director, Alan Culpepper, head coach, Jenna Reed, an assistant coach, my wife, Jen Rosario, uh, director of operations. We have our two strength and conditioning coaches. We have a sports science uh, uh, intern right now, hopefully eventually a full-time person on our staff. Uh, we have our mental sports performance specialist. We have our massage therapist. I mean, we've already got a, a gaggle of, of folks that, that, that support us each and every day here. And yeah, I, I do believe the staff will be much bigger uh, eventually social media, uh, full-time employee I, I see happening for sure. Right now we employ a, a marketing agency here in town that, that has begun helping us uh, with those sorts of things. And so it's just going to grow and grow and grow. Well, I can appreciate the personnel that you put there because those ten, those things tend to drive athletic performance far more than the widgets and the uh, technology that you can kind of put on, uh, put, put into place. And we see this with professional sports teams a lot where a lot of times they invest in the fancy gadgets and things like that. And they fail to invest in the people that can actually make sense of those gadgets. And so you leading with a people first approach with the coaches and the sports scientists and the massage therapists and the physical therapists and the strength training, uh, coaches and things like that from a, from a, professional and from a personal perspective it's quite refreshing because i think that that that's that's ultimately what drives things because then you can bring the technology in after that after that point you know and um i've always thought that those types of training groups which we see a little bit of that model at the olympic training center here in colorado springs although it's not quite as what i would call coordinated as what you have they're always greater than the sum of their parts 
Meaning once you get the sports psychologist and the coach and this coach and that coach and this professional and things like that, they're able to enhance the athlete's performance at the end of the day, much more so than if those things are all disjointed because there's some level of synergy that exists between all of those individuals to which they can, they can help the athlete with. Oh yeah. I mean, and look, the more people in your corner, yeah. More ready you feel when you toe the line. That's that's the bottom line, isn't it? I got that from your from the athletes at the Olympic trials. They just had a like an I don't and I don't know how much of this is like marketing spin that you intentionally put on, so you can divulge that if you want to. But they all seemed like they had this air of confidence about them that was markedly greater than many of the athletes in the rest of the field. Yeah. Yeah. I I think when you're training every day alongside such high level people, um, your confidence is really, really high. Um, that's, and you see that in, in other sports and, um, you see that at the collegiate level in our sport with it, with a team like Northern Arizona university. I mean, they're just that confidence. It comes from each other. You know, you just know, you know, you just know what you're doing on a daily basis. It's so, and, and, you know, there's a level of, um, uncertainty and there's a level of um kind of questioning what shape you're really in if you're by yourself all the time because you're kind of winning every day and there's confidence that comes with that but there's also that "Mm, i wonder though because i don't have that tangible uh comparison whereas yeah if you look at our women at the trials they were training with each other. So they knew how good of shape they were in because they were training. Steph was training with Alphine and Kellen. Kellen was training with Steph and Alphine. So those were the best people. So they knew they just, the confidence was very real. They very didn't, real. they didn't have to Strava stock their competition. They could just look across the dinner table and look across the training table and say, yeah, if I'm this good, I know I'm not, I know I'm going to be ready on race day. There's, That's that right. is a big part of it. I totally agree. One of the biggest advantages to these training groups is just when you bring the best of the best in and you're all beating each other up, out, uh, up on the most important workouts, like you, you get, yes, you get a big physiological bump, but the psychological bump you get from, you know, what you're doing is going to work is a, is a big, big advantage. Yeah. Look, and you, you, you have seen it in the ultra marathon world here and there. I know there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, free spirits in the ultra marathon <laughs> world, uh, but when over and there's not as much structure to some of the different groups, but you've seen when there and look it ebbs and flows and it, it, it changes, but you've seen when little, when groups of guys or, or ladies have come together and done work together, it seems to have elevated everyone. Um, I, I think, uh, I think that's just human nature. Well, we're, I've said this many, many times before, and I've said this for 20 years now that I've been working in the ultra world, we're 10 years behind every other sport. And we, we, and that we only make up like a month every year, it seems like. So maybe now we're like nine years behind everything else. But I do think that this training model that has been, uh, that we see more and more of in the traditional endurance disciplines, whether it's in cycling and in road running predominantly, maybe to a lesser extent in triathlon, I do see it migrating into trail and ultra marathon, uh, running gradually because the, the bigger limiting factor is terrain availability. And, and, and that tends to kind of like hamstring the process. There's only a few places if we're talking about North America that are really conducive 
to to that type of training. And as you mentioned in the middle of this interview, you got to want to live there. And if you yes. don't want to live in one of these places and there's only a few of them, you know, and there's only a few of them available, then your 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 options have all of a sudden run out very, very quickly. <laughs> No, that's a good point. That's a good point. But as we're as we're having this conversation, I'm also thinking that we've we've forgotten one thing. It's fun. That's true. Fun. It's hard to train by yourself day after day, month after month, year after year and not get burnt out, not get fried. But when you have others around you and in a group, of course, there's always going to be some changes in roster or whatnot. And those changes are good. Um, Bringing new people in, getting new blood in, new energy. it, it, It. it invigorates you um, in a way that just doesn't happen on your own. So I think that piece of it is, is an important piece that maybe we haven't uh, touched on, but gosh, darn it, you know, it's fun. Maybe we have created a compelling enough argument for some people to get interested in. And I mentioned to you offline, it's been something that I've been trying to, trying to see if we could pull it together in the trail and ultra space. So maybe this will be a little bit of a catalyst and we can borrow from your model, just like you're borrowing from the cycling model. So that's the legacy that you can leave. How's that sound? That sounds fine. You can, you can take it, take it, uh, take it however you want. Steal it. I don't care. I love it. I love it. All right, man, we're going to leave it at that. I, I, once again, I really appreciate your time, but I also more importantly, I appreciate the imprint that you've had on the running community with you and the group there, because I think that that's going to have a legacy that far exceeds your lifetime and my lifetime. And maybe the people that are training underneath your group's lifetime as well. And that is always something to have a little bit of pride and to kind of stick your chest out about. So as we go, where can people find more about you and your team and what you guys are doing? Well, we're very proud of the website, NACElite.com. You can see all sorts of cool videos and the whole history of the group and results all the way back to 2014. You can nerd out on that thing for hours. <laughs> um, of course, you can follow us on social media at NAZ underscore elite. You can follow me on Twitter at, um, uh, let's see, Ben Rosario one. And then on Instagram at coach Ben Rosario one, but, uh, follow the team accounts. It's super fun. Cause we try to really, uh, as you said uh, earlier, just really give you an insight into what we're doing, uh, and, and what the athletes are all about as people. I will echo that it is fun and it is neat seeing the athletes as people. So once again, man, thank you for your time and uh, good luck to you and your athletes this year and also in the future. Thank you, Jason. All right, folks, there you have it. There you go. Much thanks to Ben for coming on the podcast today. I always appreciate his perspective on how to cultivate elite athletes and how to cultivate a team of elite athletes to perform at their best, particularly when the chips are down. Appreciate the heck out of all the listeners out there. As I mentioned from the onset of this podcast, this is something that I have toyed around with in my head for a number of years. And I do think that with the landscape or the competitive landscape within trail and ultramarathon running, getting more and more competitive over the years, that a setup like Ben described during the course of this podcast is something that can be of benefit to the trail and ultra runners in the space. Time will tell if that prophecy comes true or not. And time will also tell if or how I'm involved in something like that. It is something that I have been working on for a little bit uh, for, for a while and we'll see if it comes to light or not. We have a number of great podcasts lined up, including another podcast on sleep deprivation and how to combat it in an ultramarathon setting. We have another podcast on wearables and the impact of technology on training and which ones you should focus on and which ones are irrelevant. And also we have a great podcast lined up with 
repeat offenders, Nick Tiller and Karen Malcolm, all about how ultra marathon training is different between the sexes. And can we learn anything from that that is important to training and performance? I cannot wait to get those podcasts out. Appreciate the heck out of all the listeners out there. And as always, we will see you out on the trails.